All right, thank you. Would you give the worship team a hand? Aren't they, don't they do an awesome job? Just thankful for, for the team using their gifts and talents for the Lord. Um, just a great, great team. Thank you. So it's my pleasure um, this morning to be, to be with you all. Um, Pastor Barden and his family are spending some well-deserved time away um, together, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they're able to do that. Happy to, to be with you this morning um, to speak on, on, a very, on a very, what I feel is a very important subject. Um, you know, as, I, as, we, as we look at these graduates and the, the 13 high school seniors, um, from from Living Word this morning, um, life is taking um, each of them in in every different direction, right? Some of them um, some of them going far away, some of them staying close, some of them um, getting into trades. But but as we're as we'll discuss this morning, it's our hope and prayer that each of them, wherever they go, whatever they do, right, that ultimately they would submit their lives to Christ. Whatever that means, wherever they, wherever they go, I mean. Um, part of our vision as a church is, is for healthy people. There's a vision for people to be healthy. For, for young adults, I believe that's supporting and encouraging them to seek Jesus at the stage of their life. To the parents and students themselves, to that end, um, some of you are here now, but um, I'm, I'm sending an email to all of you all by the end of um, second service today. In that email, there's a great link, and, and this is for anybody else too, if you've got a young adult in your life maybe that's graduating and you want to help resource them with something. Um, I've got a great resource from an organization known as Campus Ministry Link. And what this organization does, their main goal is to connect Christian college students to Christian community on that campus. So this organization has groups, connections to groups all over the United States, not just local, but all over the United States. At, at, you will find most college campuses, even community colleges, represented from this organization. Uh, part of the research among Christian college students shows that finding a committed group of believers local to this student to love and support them in their walk with Christ is crucial. And so I want to strongly encourage um, those here this morning to take advantage uh, of this. Um, if you're living on campus, um, students, Ministry Link is gonna, can even help you find a Christian roommate, right? They, they, they can also help you get connected with a, with a church community on that campus, um, out, you know, if you're going far, farther away to get connected with the church there at your campus. If you're staying local, I want to remind you of our awesome um, young adults group uh, right here at Living Word. They meet the first and third Sunday. They're meeting tonight, 6 p.m. at the Mar- Mar- Jamie and Sherry Mortolero. They're leading this group. Wave your hand back there. Sherry, Sherry's there. 7 p.m. at Sherry's house. Okay, we got a great young adults group going. Um, I encourage um, students staying local to check out this group. That's for 18 to 30 age. Um, I, I'm not in that anymore, so I don't I don't get to go. Uh, but but details for that group can be found um, in the bulletin or on our website as well. But but so important, guys. I can't stress this enough. So important that stu- our college age students are getting connected in a community of believers, wherever it is that they're going. But if they're, if they're staying here, they need to get connected. If they're going away, they need to get connected. It's so, so vital. So 
um, as we get into our message this morning, serious question for you. Um, who has been in a conversation before, whether that's at work or wherever that would be, neighbors, and you were a 100% sure about a certain fact? Like you knew you were right and only to find out later you were 100% wrong. Anybody else? I've done it. I've done it. Right? Big, big foot in mouth moment, right? Like, man, I was so wrong. <laughs> All right? Um, it's humbling, isn't it? It's humbling. Um, on the opposite vein, how many of you have been in a same similar type of conversation and the person you were talking with was 100% confident they were right, but you knew they were 100% wrong? Anybody else? And so bad did you want to just tell them right then, right? Like, nope, that's okay. Hopefully, hopefully you let them know, you know, with some grace <laughs> that they were 100% wrong. Okay. But hopefully you let them know. Well, I, I don't know if you knew this or not about the New Testament, but New Testament writers consistently addressed and corrected misunderstandings in the early church community. We see that all throughout the New Testament, that there were things that they were having to correct from the early church. These incorrect beliefs weren't a part of the truth that the disciples and Jesus had originally, that Jesus and the disciples had originally taught. But from a variety of influences, they, they had begun, these incorrect beliefs had begun to pervert the foundational truth of the early church teachings. And so Paul and some of the others are writing many of these New Testament letters, uh, many which are addressed to specific churches to flush out this bad doctrine. All right. They're, they're, they're hoping to just from the very beginning solidify the truth and get rid of this bad stuff. <laughs> it was inconsistent with the truth of God. Um, for some, for some of these students, you know, the, here this morning that we recognize these four years have been, um, been pretty challenging. For some, they'll look back at the years of high school with, with joy and happiness and, and miss what they had here in, in these years. For others, they couldn't be more glad to be moving on. <laughs> but as I prayed and, and prepared this morning, what I believe the Spirit of God impressed on me to share was, was not how these students could be most successful in college and beyond, right? Because that's what they're hearing from, from most of culture. And that's not a bad message, okay? But, but um, so speaking to high schoolers, Stephen Furtick said this, what college you go to is not nearly as important as who you're going to be when you get there. Amen? So rather this morning than speak of, speak of a more temporary stage of life, I want to speak this morning of an eternal truth that I pray will impact all of us, regardless of where we're at, and that is the supremacy of Christ. What does that mean, that word supremacy? All right, supremacy is being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. In reference to the person of Christ, we can add in all things. So Christ is supreme in all things to all others in authority, power, and status. Christ is above all and sufficient in all. Amen? That means for every situation you and I face, for every obstacle we might come up against, for every day, good or bad, Christ is enough. 
And so what better way to encourage all of us, regardless of that stage, uh, regardless of what we're going through, what better uh, to encourage us is to know that Christ is what I need. Christ is sufficient for my situation. So now, fair warning, I'm going to get a little brainiac on you this morning. Is that okay? I'm going to get a little nerdy. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but I promise you if, you, if you hang tight with me, um, I hope you'll see the depth of the message that the Holy Spirit has for us this morning. But throughout many of the New Testament books, again, we find sections written to the early church, which called out and corrected many of the false teachings that were already popping up. Some of these incorrect beliefs were as follows. follows. Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an early belief that had crept into the church, which held, listen to this, that salvation was obtained by knowledge, not through faith. The Gnostics believed there was a mysterious or like secret um, knowledge reserved somehow for those with true understanding, right? That, that led to salvation. And in biblical days, it actually put an emphasis on things like astrology, on magic, to actually try and discover uh, this secret truth. In a group like this one, Gnostics believed that there was like a select few, like maybe this section only over here would, would probably find that mysterious faith, right? So it was reserved for a select few, which was, which was obviously completely against what Jesus had taught. They also believed in the inherent evil of all matter, uh, materialistic things. Um, and mixed in all of this, Gnosticism kind of related was a pagan insistence on asceticism. Now, asceticism taught that the body is evil and must be treated as an enemy. So ascetics sometimes did things like tortured themselves. They, they denied themselves needs like food and water, um, believed that, believing that somehow denying them, themselves of these natural desires uh, would somehow give them control over their bodies. Does that make sense? So um, uh, you might see part of this even alive today in different areas of people that will, will starve themselves for long periods of, to deny, somehow deny normal um, natural needs that we have. Lastly, the, lastly, the Judaizers, um, these were Christians in the early church that taught that Old Testament Jewish law was, um, was required for salvation in Christ. I know pastors touched on this some recently, right, in his message on grace. But they said that if you were going to be a Christian, that you had to follow the Old Testament dietary laws, that you had to follow the Old Testament circumcision laws, that you had to follow the other Jew, Old Testament Jewish ceremonial requirements in order to be in right relationship with God. Right? How would, how would each of you here this morning like all that, um, put on you this morning? Uh, and I wouldn't, okay? That, but that's where, that's what these Judaizers were teaching. So the book of New, the book of Colossians is no different. This is what the book of Colossians is. Paul is addressing some of these false teachings, which collectively, um, we, we know of from the book of Colossians has, be, has be, um, become to be known as the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy. Paul is writing then to the church at Colossae, a small market town in present-day Turkey, and, and where he's correcting this Colossian heresy that has been making inroads into the newly formed church. 
What amazes me, guys, when we when I read or study on this subject, is it's incredible that this church was already dealing with these things. Think about it. Guys, they weren't that far removed from the person of Jesus, right? Scholars believe that the book of Colossians was written around 60 A.D., all right, meaning that if, if Jesus was, was crucified in the, in the 30s AD range, this church hadn't been around for 30 years. Hadn't been around for 30 years. Um, but somehow it already been inundated with all of this false, false teaching. Like, um, it's, it's like as a parent when you leave your kid in a room and you come back like two seconds later and the room's destroyed. Like, how did you mess this up already? How did you do this? That, that had to have been kind of what Paul was thinking as he's writing to the Colossians, right? Like, how did you guys screw this up already? What are you doing, right? But I, I think what it does is shows just how prone that the human heart is to walk away from what we know to be true. I think it shows the prone of our heart, how prone we are to do that. But the book of Colossians, as I said, is very much Paul correcting some of these early dangerous teachings. Whatever the specifics of the Colossian heresy, because we don't, the scholars don't know what the specifics that were all involved in these heresies and in the heresy. We, we believe they had, um, aspects of what I mentioned just a, a bit ago, the Gnosticism, asceticism, and, and some of the beliefs of the Judaizers kind of all mixed in there. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, again, we're going to be in Colossians. Open up with me to Colossians chapter 1. We've got some Bibles there in the front for you as well, and the Scripture's going to be um, on the screens as well. But Paul is going to, you'll notice, start to slowly chip away at all of the wrong thinking that some of the early church had picked up. And here's the more important thing I hope that you'll grab onto this morning. Paul is going to present some of the most impactful statements on the person and deity of Christ. That's where we're going to get back to the supremacy. All right, look at Colossians 1-2 with me. This is Colossians 1-2. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth. The gospel that has come to you. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard and understood God's grace and all its truth. Paul opens up Colossians as he does many of his other letters with a prayer and thanksgiving to the church and believers in Colossae as well as some encouragement for what's going for what's going well for what he knows has been has been successful in the church at Colossae seeing the letter of colossians though as we do as a letter of correction to the church um, against these false teachings it's interesting that paul begins this way and I think there's probably a clear underlying a reason maybe for why he does that. Um, let me ask you, let's go back to that thing at the beginning that I asked you about being th- thinking you were 100% wrong, but then understanding that you were r- r- wrong. I'm sorry, flip that. Thought you were right, end up you were wrong. I think what Paul is doing here is, is making sure the church at Col- the Colossae understands their worth and value to the kingdom of God. And, and, and to Paul and the other disciples. Um, if we have someone that, think about it personally. If you have someone come to you, right? And they're, and they're addressing something that maybe, um, isn't, it may, think about it at work. Maybe and you're getting feedback from a supervisor, whatever that may be. It's easier to get that feedback if we first realize that, that, that our worth and value, uh, what our worth and value are, right? 
to that to that person to the company whatever it would be makes the challenge challenging things a little easier to stomach doesn't it um, it, it doesn't mean we avoid the hard things. Paul certainly, as we'll find out, is not going to avoid the difficult stuff. But he's making sure the Colossians know how much the church means to both Paul and to the kingdom of God. When you and I have constructive criticism to give, let's make sure we don't tear down people in the process. Let's affirm their worth, their value in Christ Because then, guys, even in the bigger picture, even in the criticism, people can see they still have a part to play in the kingdom of God. Amen? On the receiving end, let's be teachable. Let's be open to constructive criticism. But when we're giving the criticism, let's be sure we don't forget to give value and worth in the same breath. It's all, it's, most of the times it's not, it's not difficult for us to critique, is it? But it's, 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 um, it's more difficult for us to find worth and value. We need to make sure that we're doing that. That's certainly something as a leader I haven't always gotten right. Um, something I'm, I'm striving to do better. Um, but there can be grace shown, I believe, even in this correction or discipline. But as we, as we continue on and get the major, into the major themes of the first chapter, I want you to pay attention to the broad statements Paul is getting, is getting ready to make here on the person of Christ. Brace yourselves for it. I think it's, it's really powerful stuff. Skipping down with me um, to verse 15, Colossians 1, verse 15. Here we go. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Notice how Paul immediately starts tackling Gnosticism, but, but maybe in a roundabout way. The, the commentary from the ESV study Bible has this to say on the first opening statement. Paul depicts Christ here in terms similar to the way wisdom was depicted in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. This Proverbs chapter 8 verse 27, the author says, When he established the heavens, I, meaning wisdom, was there. I was beside him like a master workman. In later Jewish literature, we actually see wisdom personified again um, and described as the image of God. So, so if you can see here, Paul is playing on this theme of wisdom from the Old Testament that the, that the Jews would have been familiar with, and he's, he's replacing wisdom with the person of Christ. Do you see how we did that? The, the Jews were, were used, they knew this Old Testament scripture. Paul was coming in and replacing wisdom with the person of Christ. Paul is going to, Paul is going to put on display the, the supremacy of Christ in two distinct ways here. So much solid doctrine. I love this stuff. I geek out over this stuff. I, I, but I hope you hold on to this this morning. In the first three verses, Paul is going to show us two things. One, that Christ is supreme over creation. That's going to be verses 15 through 17. And secondly, that Christ is supreme in redemption. Christ is supreme over all things in creation. Christ is supreme in all redemption. So again, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul starts 15 with a strong doctrinal statement of the deity of Christ. This was and is crucial. Guys, let me, let me tell you, I don't know if you know this, but there are many, um, there are many fringe groups out there today that, that actually deny the Trinity. They deny the Godhead. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Thereby denying the deity of Christ. But Paul is making a clear case here, right from the get-go, verse 15, that, that, um, 
explaining that the likeness of Christ is to the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Son, is fully God. Zondervan NIV Bible Commentary says that the word image in verse 15 expresses two ideas. The first is likeness. Christ is the image of God in the sense that he is the exact likeness of God. Like the image on a coin or the reflection in a mirror. The exact image. Hebrews 1.3, interesting stuff here, matches this truth by saying this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Guys, Christ is a perfect reflection of God the Father because he is also God. The second aspect of the word image is manifestation. Christ is the image of God in the sense that the, that the nature and being of God are perfectly revealed in him. In the New Testament book of John, the apostle uses a phrase no other biblical author in scripture uses to refer to Jesus, calling him the one and only. No one has ever seen God, John, this is John 1.18, but the one and only son who is at the father's side and has made him known. John's the only writer to use that phrase, the one and only. So in his glorified state, Christ was God in both likeness and in the manifestation of the father. Beyond calling Christ the image of God, Paul next refers to Christ as the firstborn of all creation. And by calling in this, Paul was speaking to a society um, with strong foundations of the firstborn status. The firstborn son in a Jewish family had all the rights, all the privileges, all the responsibility. All right, how many here this morning were the firstborn in their family? How many oldest or firstborn do we have here? A few? All right, and so from all the middle children and youngest, just know we don't like you. All right, um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, who, anybody ever read, anybody ever read the um, studies on firstborn or um, anybody? I'm sorry, on birth order. Yeah, birth order. Anybody? It's, it's actually interesting stuff. So um, we, we, it, the book was kind of about the stereotypes, right, of birth order. So we, we all know that the oldest of the family um, sometimes is the overachiever. The middle becomes the calm and collected, all right, level-headed. The youngest is the spoiled one. Okay, we all know that, right? Uh, who gets away with everything. Okay, sorry. Maybe you just saw a little bit of uh, a picture into my home as a child. I don't know. Um, but Christian psychologist and speaker, Dr. Kevin Lehman, wrote a book titled Birth Order, and he talks about some of the psychology behind your order of birth within your family. It's interesting stuff. Check it out sometime um, and, and, and how it may have effect, may have, I'm sorry, may affect your personal personality and behavior, some within where you're born. So take it or leave it. You know, it's not, it's not scripture, but it's really interesting stuff. Uh, but whether or not the Jewish culture understood the psychology behind it, there was an understanding that the firstborn had all um, held the position of honor within within the kids, right? We've we've kind of moved away from that, okay? Where we say, uh, Ethan, you're my oldest, you're my favorite. You get more than your sisters, okay? We we've kind of moved away from that a little bit, um, but merely because they were born first, the firstborn uh, were to receive a double portion of the inheritance from their family, from their parents. 
All right, a court, and this was, this was solidified in Jewish law. So the firstborn in a family, they would get twice the amount of what the other uh, children would get, right? Okay, so everybody but the oldest, again, remember, we don't like the oldest, okay? But if the parents had 100 acres of land, the oldest would be getting 50 acres, and the two youngest would be getting 25, okay, and so on and so forth. It went that way in Jewish culture with money, with with other possessions, with cattle, anything, it doesn't matter. 100 head of cattle, oldest is getting 50, the rest, right? You see, You see my point here. So we see a lot of significance given in the Old Testament on this subject of the firstborn. Of course, we remember the story of Isaac and his sons Esau and Jacob, who were twins. Um, And they were a great lesson on this concept of firstborn status and the implications of that status in in the Jewish culture. Esau, the the first twin, was technically the firstborn. And his, his, uh, his brother Jacob, twin brother Jacob, being born, quote, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. You can read this account in Genesis chapter 25. And, but in fact, the name Jacob was a pun on the Hebrew word for grasp. Isn't that crazy? And so they named him literally because apparently he was grasping onto his brother's heel when they were born. But from the story, we're told that Esau ends up selling his birthright. Remember that story? He ends up selling his birthright to his brother, Jacob. Do you remember what he sold it for? For a bowl of stew. He gave away what to him was, was going to be, going to change his life, right? In, in, in that culture, he gave it away for some food. In a moment, obviously, of mixed judgment. His double inheritance now was to his brother, Jacob. And Esau is immediately stripped of the status of firstborn. We also read about the huge implication of the firstborn in the story of the Hebrews escaping slavery in Egypt. Remember this with the last plague uh, brought on the Egyptian by God. The last and worst of the plagues, God instructed the Hebrews to paint the tops of their door frames with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. And in doing so would prevent the death of the firstborn child in the home. Unfortunately, all homes without this symbol, as God has instructed, would lose their firstborn to death as God passed over the land of Egypt. The understanding here, in, in, again, in the Jewish culture, was that the loss of this firstborn would have had a huge significance on the family because of the importance of the status that it gave. So back in first in Colossians 1.15, the use of the word firstborn had more significance, again, in biblical times than maybe we understand today. There was a deeper understanding of that position, which was to speak of the honor, again, of the place of birth. So using this reference, swinging all the way back now to to the verse, it was used here to reference the person of Jesus in the ultimate place of honor. Does that make sense? Jesus is in the ultimate place of honor. Amen? In our lives, in the heavens. So moving on to verse 16. Stay with me here. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Amen? I love that. I love that scripture. There are a lot of different ways, guys, we can go here. But I think all we have to do is to look at the state of our current political um, um, landscape and the negative reactions, okay, when, when, when our person loses, to see how much stock we put 
and what leader is in place. Now, I want to be careful here this morning. Don't get me wrong. Elections certainly have implications, right? But Paul reminds us here that the supremacy of Christ is even over who is in positions of power around the world. Amen? Former British atheist turned Christian Malcolm Muggridge had these wise words to say, read by apologist Ravi Zacharias on the ultimate position of Christ over the earthly rulers of our world. Take a watch. I love it. Malcolm Muggridge had seen so much in his lifetime as a British writer, um, atheist turned Christian, and he came to see that Christ was supreme over all the evil, over all the good that he had seen in the world. So we can have confidence today in that as well. Remember that Paul, on this note, is writing Colossians from prison. He's writing the book of Colossians sitting in a prison cell. I explained to my youth a couple weeks ago, um, sitting in a prison cell in, in biblical times was not like sitting in a prison today. right? There were, um, you were lucky if you ate. You ate only if people brought you food. Okay, there's rat-infested, damp, wet cells. Um, it's, it's not a place that you want to be. Um, do you think that Paul had a positive outlook of the government of his day? There's no way. He didn't. But yet in all of that, he knew and he remembered that Christ was supreme over his situation. Amen? It's a great reminder for all of us that Christ is above all thrones. He's above our rulers. He has supremacy over it all. I needed to be reminded of this today. I think we can put so much emotion. We can allow division in our fringe groups and other areas simply because they don't see eye to eye with us on something that in the light of supremacy, in uh, in light of the supremacy of Christ, seems so insignificant. So Paul lets us know that Christ is not supreme over just over earthly rulers. He's also supreme over invisible creations, a clear reference to the spiritual world. Remember that part of the local Jewish and pagan practices of the day was actually an emphasis on the angelic. Commentary on on this subject seems to indicate there was some sort of folk belief that, that actually called on angels for help and protection from evil spirits. You had people um, actively praying to angels. Um, it, it's not uncommon even here to, um, even today to hear of people praying to angels. The, the, but the biggest concern here was that according to Colossians 2.18, some were apparently disqualifying believers who did not worship and pray to angels. So I love, I love the balance here to the person of Christ and, and the supernatural. Yes, angels exist. Yes, we see times throughout Scripture where angels were sent as messengers, as protectors. But as soon as the focus, listen to me, is taken away from Christ and, and these created things are the focal point, Christ has lost his preeminence in our lives. So by him, all things were created, even angels, their creation. There's a bigger picture here, I think, um, with a caution to our culture. If we're, if we're not careful, the created can sometimes take place of the creator. We sometimes hear of people worshiping Mother Earth or other, or other natural things, that, that, natural causes that end up elevating aspects of creation above the creator. Verse 17 goes on to say, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
How many of you here this morning have ever felt like you needed something to hold things together, hold your life together? I've, I've been there. People, um, singles, felt, feel like you have no support. Spouses, maybe who have felt alone. Those of us who have suffered incredible, incredible, dif- incredibly difficult pain or loss. Um, that emptiness, that loneliness, that pain is healed by the person of Christ. I can have the worship team come here, come up to, to close us this morning. Um, Christ holds it all together for us. Amen. If you're searching for something this morning to hold things together, can I tell you that Jesus is that glue that you need in your life? Jesus is what you need. In the next few verses, Paul switches themes to show that Christ is supreme in redemption. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Christ is not only over and supreme in relation to the supernatural and natural worlds, including rulers and angels. Christ is also supreme over the church. Paul tells us from the previous uh, epistle, Ephesians, that Christ is the chief cornerstone. You guys heard that phrase in that last song this morning, cornerstone. In him, Christ is the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. Christ is also supreme over death, having been the first to conquer death and the grave as the firstborn from among the dead, as it said in verse, uh, verse 18. Maybe some are saying this morning here, all right, Brandon, I get it. Christ is supreme. What's the point, right? What, verse 19 and 20, I think, are going to end with a big picture for us. The hope that you and I need um, in the world that's lost needs to hear. Verse 19 and 20, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, but making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Our response everyone, to the message of the supremacy of Christ is the surrender of our lives. Don't miss that. Our response to the message of the supremacy of Christ is the surrender of our lives. Through Christ, God provided a way to reconcile us to him through Jesus' shed blood. The message of the gospel should always come back to this place this morning. You and I, without the free gift of salvation, are lost in our sin and unable to approach God. And so he sent his son to be everything that you and I need to be in relationship with him. Here's our takeaway as we, as we close. Christ is supreme in our lives so that we can be set free from the things that bind us and keep us from coming to God. I want to close here this morning. I want to end here with a personal invitation for anyone that's that's here this morning and and not made that decision to walk in relationship with the Lord, to walk in obedience to Him. If you haven't done that, I want to I want to challenge you now to not to not uh, move past this moment. Um, you can respond on the response cards in front of you that you've, that you've made that decision. Leave it in your chair. Um, put it at the back wherever you'd like, and we'll pick those up for you. I want you to know, church, that our, our staff and our prayer team as well, 
prays over every every response card we get is prayed over um and and we we want to come alongside you this morning if you're gonna if you make that decision we believe it's so important to support and encourage those and everyone right everyone making those decisions to walk towards towards jesus and if you're stuck this morning if you're, if you're here this morning, say, Pastor Brandon, I'm in relationship with Christ, um, but I don't have that glue right now that I think I need. I, I, I'm in a position, I'm in a situation, and I feel like I need something to hold me together right now. Please fill out a, a prayer card again, and our prayer team wants to pray over your situation. We want to love and support you exactly where you're at. Write that down, fill that out, um, put, put that in the, on the seats, and we'll um, pray over those this week. Church, Christ is enough for your situation. Whatever it is, I don't care what it is, Christ is enough for that situation. If you haven't already, then I'm praying that you'll put your trust in him this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for a reminder this morning of the supremacy of Christ in our situation currently, whatever difficulty, whatever challenge that may be, uh, even if things are great, God, you're supreme in that situation. God, you're supreme over the, the rulers and authorities over this country, Jesus, over the world. Your supremacy is even in that situation. And God, because of all of that, we can have the ultimate trust in you. God, I pray this morning if there are those that that haven't placed their trust yet in you and need to walk into a relationship with you, God, prick their hearts. I pray, God, to, to take that step to let us know so that as a church we can come alongside them and love them and support them. God, that we can get them into a community where they can learn and grow what it means and learn what it means to follow you. God, thank you for, for everyone here this morning. Thank you for the truth of the word of God. And everyone said, amen, amen.